0: The following audio is from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Acts is available at actschurchleander.com. Now we hear God's word, first of all, from the Old Testament, from Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. This is God's word. Now, the word from the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Jesus replied, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Uh, As we begin this new series in the book of John, uh, the I Am series, um, I'm actually going to begin with a short story that I asked my oldest daughter to write for me. Uh, to illustrate something at the very core of my message. Uh, but even more than that, it's at the, I believe it's at the very core of John's gospel. So here we go. Here's my, here's my 12-year-old's short story, so listen, listen carefully. There was a boy at a train station one day, and a large crowd had gathered at the station, but something about him made him stick out amongst the crowd. If you had walked by and passed the large crowd, you would undoubtedly still notice him. Maybe it was the scar on his face or the birdcage he had placed on the ground next to him. Whatever it was, the boy standing between platforms 9 and 10 turned many heads that day. As the young boy boarded the train, the conductor yelled out, All aboard, next stop is White Owl Station. The boy took his seat and placed his birdcage beside him. As he sat there, he was soon approached by an old lady walking through the aisle of the train. She wasn't staying on the train for the trip, However, while the train waited to depart, she was taking her opportunity to sell from an array of good luck charms. The boy removed a few coins from the scarlet and gold emblem chest pocket of his blazer and purchased from her collection something labeled as a single strand of unicorn hair. She whispered a grateful thank you and then leaned in closer to his ear and quietly said, Be brave at heart, young man. And she silently left the train. A few moments later, As the train began to move, the train conductor came through his section of the train, collecting everyone's tickets. As he came to the boy, he took his ticket with a kind and friendly tone, asked, off to see anyone in particular? The boy was quiet, quite caught off guard by the question, and hesitated to answer. The conductor, noticing his hesitation, quickly dispelled the uneasiness and followed up by saying, you're all right, young lad, no need to answer that question. Not everyone we know must be named. The conductor went on merrily down the aisle as the train moved along. The end. Now, some of you here, like, me, uh, like myself, heard nothing in that short story other than the strange details of the story itself. But to some of you, there were certain key words, certain echoes and phrases, images alluded to that echoed of a much larger story already embedded in your imagination. Does anyone want to just yell out what story that may have been alluding to? Ariah, it's better than first service. Now of course, I asked my daughter to purposefully plant images within a short story that only people familiar with the infamous Harry Potter series would recognize. I asked her to use the art of storytelling to make sure that a certain culture of listeners would hear echoes of a story that they already knew within her her short story. Now, why am I leading our minds down the road of considering the art of storytelling to begin a a series, the I Am series, which is primarily a series on the identity of Jesus as revealed in John's Gospel? My answer to that is this, because understanding the techniques used in the art of storytelling are crucial for seeing how John is revealing Jesus' identity in his Gospel, now, I've been using this term storytelling already quite a bit throughout the introduction, and I want to be slightly careful with that term as it comes to Scripture. However, I believe it's the most appropriate term I can use to help us see, to help us see what the Gospel writers are actually doing. At the very end of John's Gospel, um, he says in the very last lines, he says this, "'This is the disciple who is giving evidence about these things, who wrote them down. We know that his evidence is true, there are many other things which Jesus did. If they were written down one by one, I don't think the world itself would be able to contain the books that would be written. So what John is saying here is, John is saying he is giving evidence. So we're not to assume the, narrative, the gospel narratives are fiction. However, he also, although he lets us know there was, he also lets us know there was more moments that could have been told, could have been told of, or. Um, that he didn't write and that he didn't write everything down one by one like a scribe would have. Rather, he, selective, he selectively took the evidence and formulated one seamless narrative with the agenda of leading us to see the mystery of who Jesus was. And this means that John's gospel is a masterfully crafted story where he has purposefully planted certain words and images in the narrative certain things to his intended audience. He, I'm sorry, just like my daughter in her short story, he as she wants to draw you back to a certain story and certain moments in that story. And befittingly, because as John's intended first intended audience were a people of story, they were the people of a long-existing narrative. They were Israelites. Their very name as a people, the name of Israel, was itself tied intricately to a story. You guys remember that beautiful moment, of, uh, a beautiful moment of identity and blessing, when the new name of Israel was given to Jacob, whose name had previously meant the deceiver, as he wrestled with an angel until he would bless him. And then, even and then even on the twelve tribes of Israel, that they identified their lineage with their traditions, their ceremonies, the Jewish festivals, their culture. We're all part of one long, sacred, ongoing story. And, John is, writing a sto- and J- so John is writing a story to an audience that are products of a larger story that he, therefore, is echoing, which is hard for us to grasp, for we live in a culture that recognizes no single one narrative. So there's nothing for us to, to, to draw back from. And especially, if, even if we could, it's not even close, not even a, a midget close to as long as the Jewish narrative story. You've got to think about this. You're in the New Testament, and next time you're just reading through the Gospels or even Paul's epistles, pay attention to how many times they speak of Moses and Abraham and David. These figures are 2,000 years removed from Jesus himself, yet still the Bible is full of them. The Jewish narrative was inherent in its own culture. We have no idea how to relate to that, so it takes some work. Yet we cannot see what John is suddenly saying about the identity of Jesus in his narrative if we are not keenly aware of, one, what he is doing, or of the larger narrative he is echoing. as the same thing with those in the audience who have not read Harry Potter. You had a hard time relating to any secret images I was giving in that story. It was just nonsense to you. But everyone here who had read the book instantly was able to draw back into the story that they understood and know what, we were, what, what I was talking about. It's the same way with us. If we do not have the Old Testament narrative in ourselves, we cannot see what Jesus is saying. So in the specific text for today, we're going to see John massively use uh, two storytelling techniques to subtly bring out the mysterious identity of Jesus. In this passage today, John uses a storytelling technique of figural interpretation to show Jesus' identity as the promise. And secondly, John uses the storytelling technique of echoing, which we've discussed, to mysteriously show that Jesus is also the promise maker. So on to the first technique. He lets us see that Jesus is the promise. In John 8, it says, "'Your father Abraham celebrated the fact that he would see my day. He saw it and was delighted.' Now, this is Jesus te- speaking to the Judeans. Um, and, and we understand that the Jude- Judeans' reaction to this statement when they respond, and, and they're saying, basically, how in the world could you have seen Jesus' I mean, how could you have seen de- Abraham's day? You're, fi- you're barely even 50 years old. And we have to agree with them. It's, it's an odd thing. We have to say, in what way did Abraham see Jesus' day? Jesus was born almost another 2,000 years after, after Abraham. And I believe John is purposefully drawing his readers back to the original narrative by, the mean, by means of speculation, meaning he wants the reader of the gospel to ask that question and he wants you to go back to Genesis to answer it. So when we do, when we go back to Abraham's story in Genesis, what do we see in it that would tell us that Abraham had somehow seen Jesus' day? The first thing that comes to my mind is the promise. The most important thing about the patriarch Abraham to Israel as a people to whom they trace their entire ethnic lineage and beginning is that Abraham was given a promise from God. And the most important and impactful aspect of that promise was that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But there was a problem. Sarah was barren and Abraham was old. So when God miraculously opened Sarah's womb and allowed her to give birth to Isaac, I believe there in that moment of first seeing the beginning of his promised seed, seed that he had never expected to see, Abraham in some way saw the beginning of what would one day be a day when all the nations would be blessed in Abraham's seed. So in a po- poetical sense, this, certainly, this could certainly be said to uh, be said to have seen Jesus' day, even though Abraham would not know um, the timing or the details of that descendant in his own day. However, the reason that was the first thing that came to my mind outside of that I'm some kind of genius is that Paul actually did the commentary on this in Galatians. So Paul basically gave us the commentary on, on this passage in John in his letter to the Galatians. So listen up as I read through Galatians. Not the whole book, but just the passage, Sorry. Um, so Paul says this to the, to the Galatian church. So you know it is the people of faith who are children of Abraham. The Bible foresaw that God would justify the nations by faith so it announced the gospel to Abraham in advance when it declared that the nations will be, blessed, will be blessed in you. And Paul goes on later in the letter to say, the Messiah redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. As the Bible says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This was so that the blessing of Abraham could flow through to the nations in King Jesus and so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And this is the important part. My brothers and sisters, let me use a human illustration. When someone makes a covenanted will, nobody sets it aside or adds to it. Well, the promises were made to Abraham and his seed, that is, his family. It does not say his seeds, as though referring to several families, but indicates a single family by saying, and to your seed, meaning the Messiah. You see, Paul's argument in Galatians is that the promise made to Abraham that all the nations would be blessed in his seed is based on the fact that God always intended that there would be one single family made up of all nationalities and people. Paul masterfully expounds that Jesus, as Israel's Messiah, as their representative, in his death and resurrection, has accomplished this one single family. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free. The Torah, or the law, you see, would have always created multiple distinct families. It would have created Jews and Christian Jews. Because of its ceremonial and created distinctions. This is why Paul elsewhere says that he died to the law, because he saw that this one single family had been creating, created in the Messiah. Meaning, in that sense, Abraham did see that one seed, and Israel was all represented in the Messiah. Now, I say this, understand, the understanding of the promise being how Abraham saw Jesus' day came to my mind in reading John, because Paul had basically done the commentary on John. However, technically, Galatians is, was written before the Gospel of John. So it might be more appropriate and more interesting to my point to speculate that John is in fact the commentary in story form of Galatians. Paul is a theologian and gives us a theologically rich argument and masterfully brings out the details of the original text and makes this academically phenomenal thesis six-like chapter letter thing. John, I suggest, is equally, however, a theologian but is a masterful storyteller and sums up the same argument as Paul subtly, cryptically, mysteriously in one sentence in his narrative from Jesus' lips. Your father Abraham celebrated the fact that he would see my day. He saw it and was delighted. And we see clearly here, as I have stated, that John in his gospel is connecting to the larger ongoing story of Israel not beginning a new, unrelated one. John is showing us that Jesus is the honoring of that ancient promise made to Abraham. That promise that in Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And John, in his whole narrative, is carefully alluding to this beginning, this beginning to happen in the person of Jesus. John, in his narrative, is tying into bringing to climax, saying loudly that his story is about the, promise, about the promise being kept. But his immediate hearers, as much as their echoes should ring in that old story, don't seem to get it. And it is interesting that John doesn't show Jesus going into some poor line-like discourse to clear any confusion up. Instead, he goes on instead into a whole other level of mystery, The Pharisees listening to this claim of Abraham seeing his day respond on a purely literal level, appealing to the simple chronological facts of the distance of nearly two millenniums between Abraham and Jesus. And Jesus' response to this in John's Gospel again illustrates that the cryptic art of storytelling, this time using the art of echoing. And this response brings us to the second and most important core element within Israel's worldview the promise maker. So Jesus' response to that question is this. Instead of giving them clarity, he says, I'm telling you the solemn truth, replied Jesus. Before Abraham existed, I am. And I imagine they said, thank you for more confusion over the last thing you just said. But we, saw, we just saw that in his own storytelling way, John has revealed that Jesus was the long-awaited seed of Abraham, the Messiah. That Jesus was the summation of the promise made to Abraham. This identity of Jesus as Messiah is, some ways, um, in some ways was always clearly on the table. Throughout the Gospel of John, he makes us aware that there was a heightened expectation of a Messiah coming, um, of, a, of a Jewish king coming. The question was not, If there was a Messiah, but if Jesus could in fact be him. And I want to quickly say, when I say Messiah there, the Jewish context would be of of a Davidic-like king. They weren't expecting the second member of the Trinity. I mean, when they say Messiah, that's what they're talking about, a physical king. That was always on the table. However, where he takes us here in the second part of the passage was not on the table. And it is not brought up or addressed directly. Rather, it is subtle. It is through the art of story through the technique of echo, drawing out the mystery from those who had the original story already embedded in them. And if we wish to see how John reveals the identity of Jesus in the book of John, we must pay very close attention to the imagery he uses to uh, take his readers there. Even if we go back to the beginning of the argument with the Judeans, which starts in chapter 8, John is leading his readers' imaginations in a certain direction. He's implanting certain images of the exodus by the technique of echo. So pay attention to the language provoked earlier in the dialogue. And I've I've read through this several times in chapter 8, and I really see now that Jesus is arguing with the Judeans, but he's taking them somewhere purposefully. He's probably the most ungraceful communicator in this aspect because he continues to incite them and and stir them up. So listen to the passage in, in John 8. Beginning in verse 31, where basically the, the, the narrative begins. So Jesus spoke to the Judeans who had believed in him. And what I want you to do, sorry, let me back up one second. As I read this, I want you to pay attention, as you did to the Harry Potter story, to the key words that are implanted in the text. I mean, don't look for Harry Potter, but look for the. Jewish. shouldn't have started with that. Anyway, so Jesus spoke to the Judeans who had, who had believed in him. If you remain in my word, he said. You will truly be my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We are Abraham's descendants, they replied. We've never been anyone's slaves. How can you say you'll become free? I'm telling you the solemn truth, Jesus replied. Everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. The slave doesn't live in the house forever. The son lives there forever. So you see, if the son makes you free, you will be truly free. That's John 8 through 31. This language would echo the Exodus narrative. As you read it, it's almost as if Jesus purposefully has provoked the conversation to go a certain way so that the right imagery would be in place by the time that he gets to the part of our text. So that when we come to the text, when we, when we come to this major part of the whole argument, when he says, I'm telling you the solemn truth, replied Jesus, before Abraham existed I am that he's already been leading them with images of slavery which for the Jewish people any Jewish people speaking of Abraham would have continually gone back to the imagery of the Exodus they were slaves for 400 years after their very beginning from Abraham under Moses so when you say the term slavery to one group of people and another group of people it can only conjure up their own history meaning once again if you go back to the Harry Potter story if i say the word a scarlet and red lion emblem pocket chest. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The rest of you are just thinking of a jacket. Then that's what I'm saying. As Jesus is provoking this language, we have to, as we read it, we have to remember the context of things that would have come up in us. If we say slavery today in this country, we have a certain narrative in America that we relate to. If we say it in Europe, it means something different. So I've got off on a tangent there, but nonetheless, what I'm trying to say is he is echoing certain types of words. So here is John using the technique of echoing. And in this passage where he says, I am, he's using one name that echoes with something sacred in the original story, and it would bring a flood of emotion to its hearers. Going back to Exodus three, it says, But Moses said to God, Look, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? then what shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. And he said, so you must say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. And God again said to Moses, so you must say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And what I want us to see here is that John is writing this Sorry, As John is writing this, he is standing right there in the long story of Israel. As he is describing this moment with Jesus, cryptically evoking this passage from Exodus by using the name of Yahweh, John is not abstractedly, abstractedly writing some theological thesis on the doctrine of God. He is rather right there in the moment as a Jew, as an Israelite, in fascination that in Jesus he had been seeing the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of his people. Meaning this, when John shows Jesus echoing the sacred name in his narrative, it is not in just a matter of him saying in a culturalist vacuum, I am divine, I am divine. And we have tragically scaled this powerful story down So just a simple proof text to show that, that Jesus was divine. John does not add in any commentary here as well. He doesn't have in his text, and Jesus said this to show he was divine. He he doesn't give that. And why not? Because there is something much more subtle, personal, Moving, moving, happening here, too amazing and holy for doctrine or a thesis, something so outstanding and breathtaking that it must be left in the, to a mysterious line of the narrative. It must be left to the art of storytelling. For by echoing one single word, it reaches back through time to the very heart of the Jewish story, Israel's story. It makes the long connection to, the, to their ancestors enslaved under the hand of Pharaoh. It gathers all the pain and the hurt of centuries since, of enslavement, of failed revolts, and of longing for the God of the covenant to return. And it says to Israel, there in slavery under the hand of Rome, but even greater under the under the slavery of sin that they don't even see that the God of the Exodus, the God who sees the misery of his people, who hears their cry of distress because of their oppressors, who knows their suffering, has come down to deliver them from the hand of their enemy. Yahweh has returned to his people. And cryptically, by the end of, the gospel, of, the, of John's gospel, John wants his readers to see behind this subtle echo that the same man who hung on the cross outside the walls of Jerusalem um, was the same God who said to Moses, so you must say to the Israelites, I am sent me to you. Now all this to say to us as a modern church, we must enter the gospels understanding that we are right, we are coming right into a long ongoing story and we are walking into a moment of that story full of longing and despair, but also of hope and expectation. The Old Testament, you see, is a story in need of resolve. It is, and that is what the gospel writers are addressing. That's what they're coming into. The last prophet in the Old Testament canon, Malachi, leaves us with this cliffhanger ending. It's an unfinished story. We are left at the end of the Old Testament with questions in the story that are unanswered, with only the hope of promises made Do the Jewish people hang on. And I believe it's absolutely crucial for us as the modern church to keep this fact on the forefront of our minds, because for many of us, the story of Jesus in the way that his it has been presented, by default, has ripped Jesus out of the, original, of the story that he came to bring to its climax and instead presented him as the author of a brand new story, a story that is completely foreign and unrelated to Israel's story and leaves questions unanswered. Even worse, it has been some, in some ways, it has, been, it has been presented as a replacement story, Jesus being not one coming to bring any resolve to Israel's unfinished story, Were presented only as one bringing to Israel a contrast of soteriological systems for getting right with God. The way we have presented the story of the New Testament in the last few centuries, in light of its long Jewish context, is similar to this. It's similar to two parents sitting—I mean, starting to read the aforementioned Harry Potter series to their young children nightly. And those parents with masterful storytelling and engagement skills. Are getting their children absolutely hooked and captivated with the story, and anxiously going through the book. And go, sorry, and anxiously going through book by book. They start the children with the Sorcerer's Stone, then getting on through that to the Chamber of Secrets, and on to the Prisoner of Azkaban. And ah, we're moving to the Goblet of Fire next. And they keep reading, keep reading, and then they come to the Order of the Phoenix, coming all the way to the Half Blood Prince. And then months and months later, they get to the point that they are ready for the last book. They get it. The Deathly Hollows is in their possession. And they get it two months earlier than its official release, thanks to their father who found it in a small street market on a business trip while out of the country. Ah, the suspense. However, the copy of the Deathly Hollows they received, unbeknownst to them, was in fact a hijacked bootleg version of the true story, by someone who knew nothing of the original plot and just saw a chance to make some money from tourists because of the huge success of the series. And as the children are on the edge of the bed salvating with anxiety and suspense, wanting to know what happens next in the story, how it all ends, the parents start to read, and chapter by chapter, all the way till they get to the end of the book. And when it's all said and done, it offers no resolve whatsoever. It abandons the original plot, discards the storyline, deviates from all the themes and brings no conclusion to the characters that have been there in the other six books, but instead goes an entirely different direction and conveys an absolutely unrelated point to the long story they had been patiently following. And I want to say that that is exactly what we have unconsciously done to first century Israel as a people in the way that we have conveyed the point of the New Testament. Israel has been in this long, dramatic six-part series, this passionate relationship between Yahweh and herself. There is the bridegroom and the bride language in the prophets, the gardener and the vine, the apple of his eye, yet the adulterous wife, of covenant-breaking and yet merciful promises of restoration. It is this web of century-long drama. Slavery to deliverance from tyrannical empires. Seeing the sea part before them, manna falling from the sky, all to end in failure and exile. To a short liberation, all the way back to disappointment after disappointment, and back to enslavement. But all the while, Israel is hanging on to the promise and and the covenant nature of their God. In modern Christianity, has stepped in in the way that we have read and taught the Scripture and acted as if the only thing Jesus came to tell his own was that they were moralists and they were wrong, as if he was completely ignorant of the unfinished story that their hopes had longed for. We have basically said by default to Israel in their long unfinished story, nothing more than, to present it harshly, sorry, that whole story was simply to show you you had the wrong system of merit. And we have presented a summarized story of Jesus dying on a cross to make a way to take us off to heaven when we die, but never addressing the long, unfinished story of Israel. And as the children on the end of that bed, waiting to see what happens to Harry and his friends, being read that bootlegged seventh volume of The Deathly Hollows, I can only imagine them looking at this new unrelated narrative, we are presented and saying, that has absolutely nothing to do with the series we were in. This can't even be the same author. The unrelated way the story was presented gives us an sorry, the unrelated way the story was presented also gives us an image and identity of Jesus that is all too easily disconnected from the God that is presented and revealed in the story of the Old Testament. Hence, it is no wonder that the church has battled with heresies over the centuries that have tried and often succeeded to separate the God we see in the Old Testament from the nice Jesus we see in the New. By presenting Jesus, a Jesus that completely ignores the long, painful story of Israel, of slavery, of rebuke, of exile, but then compassion, love, and cherished tears, we have we have miss the magnificence and the beauty of what John is revealing about the identity of Jesus. We as Christians are people of a long story, and we lose so much if we see Jesus and the gospel disconnected from that long narrative. We will have shortchanged ourselves of the wonder that we have been brought into. The apostle Paul fought for this, that we as Gentiles would be brought into the long story of the covenant people of God. That is what all his letters are about. Not, allow, not allowing us just to be some side compartment, but bought into the fold, grafted into the vine, made a part of that long story. That is what the New Testament is about. Our story as Christians is so much longer, so much deeper than the way it has sometimes tragically been oversimplified, that you are a sinner and Jesus died for you, so you can go to heaven. I don't mean to belittle the efforts of those who have reached people with that message. However, it is the message that we have is so much richer, so much deeper. And I think that the only way for us to move beyond a shallow future of Christianity is to see our connection to this massively deep and long story that began with an amazing promise made to a childless nomad, that in him all the nations would be blessed. So I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us. I want to ask of you a large task. I want to challenge us as a generation that has inherited the responsibility to study the Scripture as good reformers in the spirit and the heart of Luther that will you press in with me to move from simply using the vague word God in some abstract way and to really re-engage the long story of that we were grafted into. To pick up the whole seven book series, so to speak, and see this amazing narrative. To fully enter into the long story that we have been grafted into. And to not let Jesus simply be some timeless moral teacher or some religious name upon our lips, but to see that the promise and the promise maker are mysteriously one. As we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, We are not coming to some simply traditional religious practice of Christianity. That's a short change of what it is. We are coming to the longest story the world knows, to a sacred moment that speaks of the continuation of that story generation after generation that began long, long before us. We come to the story that began with a promise made to Abraham, When we come to the table, we come to a story of a burning bush from which the the same God called out to Moses from within. When we come to this table, we come to the story of Passover, where the blood of an unblemished lamb was used to mark on the doorpost of homes so that the angel of death would pass over those homes. When we come to the table, we come to the story of David weeping over the loss of his son. When we come to the table, we come to the story of Israel in exile, weeping by the streams of Babylon. We come to the story of Israel under Roman occupation and its corrupt leaders. When we come to the table, we come to the story of Jesus on the very night before Passover, blessing and breaking bread, passing a vessel of wine, presenting a new chapter in the long story of Israel. The storyteller entered the story in order to keep his promise. When we come and partake of this sacred moment, we are, we are by it proclaiming in our action, our trust, our hope, and our allegiance to the promise-keeping God, to the God who is, I am. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.